What we've been doing the last couple of weeks is taking a look at living like Jesus lived. And uh, some churches, they will give you the list of 10, 15 things that you can do to live like Jesus lived. And there's a pretty good list. But that list is usually a mimicking of actual behaviors versus really living like Jesus lived. If you're going to do what would Jesus do, there's only one answer to what would Jesus do. Because Jesus lived abiding in his Father. He listened to the voice of his Father moment by moment as he was going from place to place. He didn't offer God the to-do list. Here, God, here's my things I'm going to try and do to please you today. But if we don't know what abiding means, if we don't understand what it means to listen to Christ in us, however he speaks through the Holy Spirit, through our thoughts, through other people, who knows what. If we don't realize that, we're going to try and make up the difference for the lack of what we're not hearing and create our own little to-do list that looks and sounds spiritual or even looks biblical because somewhere in the Bible it says it. Well, that's not how Jesus lived. He lived abiding the Father. And then he told us, as the Father sent me, in the same way I'm sending you. Just like I abided, now you abide. So I want to pull out the character of Christ in all this. I want to know what it looks like as he was listening to the Holy Spirit. We're going to walk through a bunch of stories. Last week we began, and this week we're going to zoom into the extra effort of loving the overlooked. And this is uh, on affirming equality. And some of the stories you'll, you'll recognize, but the reason we're doing this is because we probably have not walked through the stories of Christ since Sunday school. And oh wait, not everybody has gone through Sunday school. We're assuming that. So I want to bring some of those stories to light and refresh our memories. And then we get to see the character of this Jesus we say we believe in. What did he really do? What was his attitude like? What's another lens that could encourage us to say, hey, I can live like Jesus lived. I can abide and learn to hear his voice. So this first story is the woman at the well. I'm going to read part of it, and then we're going to uh, talk about it briefly and then move on to another one. But this, this particular story, I did a teaching on last August and kind of did a healthy twist because we've always painted the woman at the well as the immoral woman who's the prostitute who slept around. And, you know, we, that's how it's been played out in most commentaries when that is not the only perspective. We actually began to look at how knowledgeable she was. We don't know why she had five husbands. We don't. Uh, back then, they got divorced mighty fast. You burn the soup, you're divorced. That's how quickly they could do it. That's how stupid it was, and that's how women were viewed. Many men died young. There were wars. They died out in the field. Like the, we don't know. So there's a lot of guessing to make her look like some totally immoral person, but there was a bit of a key that came about when she went back to her village. She wasn't the outcast speaking. She was the one already respected speaking. You don't have an outcast come back home. A, a prodigal son has been living, or a daughter who's, who's been living this crazy life that's not reliable, and then you trust the first thing they say? Really? Any parent knows, okay? It doesn't happen. Um, if you have any relatives, a brother or sister who's done that, like you know right away like the pattern shows believability until you see a new pattern. For relationships, correct? Am I, you guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. So this woman goes back to her village, 
and they hear right away and come. They believe her testimony. So I think there's a more beautiful perspective on this woman we need to see. Lorinda brought this up to me last, last June or July, whatever it was, in a conversation. I went, oh, man, I love that lens. And only to find out so many more people have had that lens long before me. It's like, oh, man, that was new to me. That was cool. I'm, I'm borrowing that one. But uh, that, that's kind of where the story could be going. So with that new lens, let's reread part of the story and see if we can find a character trait of Christ of how he viewed people. Jesus arrived at the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph long ago. Wearied by his long journey, he sat on the edge of Jacob's well. He sent his disciples to the village to buy food, for it was already afternoon. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink of water. Surprised, she said, why would a Jewish man ask a Samaritan woman for a drink of water? Now, I'm sure each of us have a tone in our head of how she could be saying it because each person has their own lens. When you deal with just a written text, you can project your own personality, of people, the nag, the, the happy one. Like you can, you can put every lens you want into this. But I bet you there's a bit of a um, political snide coming because he's a Jew. She was ready for a political fight. She, she knew her stuff. Uh, Jesus replied, um, if you only knew who I am and the gift that God wants to give you, you'd ask me for a drink and I would give you living water. Remember, he's seated at the entrance of the well. And that well was a spring-fed well. Okay? So spring of life, like this... This is not a mistake that's going on here. This is, this is a pretty significant um, uh, picture Jesus is drawing. The woman replied, but sir, you don't even have a bucket, and this well is very deep, so where do you find this living water? Do you really think that you are greater than our answer? This is where, this, this is where the, you can sense the, uh, the, she ups the ante in her tone, okay, like, who do you think you are? You think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well and drank from it himself along with his children and livestock? Well, then he continues to banter. He, he, here's the cool thing. This is the character trait I want you to see. Jesus took time to talk. He allowed someone to engage. He didn't have to be right. Okay? He chatted with her. He didn't use his male dominance because the whole culture was male-dominated. Women had no voice. He didn't use that against her. And she was even a Samaritan woman, so he could have had double rights in his culture to keep her in her place, so to speak. Oh, my goodness, he did the exact opposite. A woman who would be marginalized because, first, she's, she's a woman, and speaking with a Jew, they're not supposed to talk to each other. So Jesus does this chat with her and reveals, uh, asks her about being married. She says, I'm not married now. Um, and Jesus says, uh, yeah, you, but you've had five husbands. And suddenly, after she realizes who this guy is, uh, there's something internal in her that wakes up and senses a divinity. A revelation hits her, okay? And she drops her bucket and runs, okay? Like, you just spend all the time getting that water, and then you drop it and run? Really? 
Okay, but she did. She ran off and told everyone, come and meet a man at the well who told me everything I ever done. He could, uh, he could be the anointed one we've been waiting for. Hearing this, the people came streaming out of the village to go see Jesus. So if you got a, a nutcase person in your group of people, we all have one, um, who is on uh, conspiracy theories or um, has crazy ideas all the time, and you just, you just don't trust them anymore, right? If you got that person coming to you and say, hey, this could be the Messiah, you go, gotcha, yep, perfect, keep going, have my coffee, move away, you know? They came right away. This has got to be something credible. Her character must have been a character that's believable and trustable, or they would not have come. Not all at once. Like, that's a lot of people coming. Then it gets better. So there were many from the Samaritan village who became believers in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Did he really? Did Jesus really tell her everything she ever did? Like, come on. You know, did you get, is your book big enough to write it all down? What, what, what is going on here? This had to do with knowing her intimately. Somehow, Jesus communicated to her, I know you, and you're okay. Knowing the full depth of our entire character, he still reached out in love. He still allowed the conversation to, to flow, and obviously he's doing agape to her like crazy, and she's sensing love, all right? So when she says, he told me everything I ever did, maybe she sensed, oh my, this is the one who knows everything about me and still loves me, still accepts me, still speak to me, regardless that I'm Samaritan, regardless that I'm a woman. Hmm. Then they begged Jesus to stay with them. So he stayed there for two days, resulting in many more coming to faith in him because of his teaching. Then the Samaritans said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you told us, but now we've heard him ourselves and are convinced that he really is the true Savior of the world. Jesus did not mince words. He spoke to their culture. He spoke through their religious lenses. And he knew the cultural ones because the Samaritans had, a, had a, a sense of, well, we're supposed to worship over here, the Jews worship over there. And you can read the rest of the story for, for the banter back and forth. And the woman knew her stuff. She was theologically solid. She, how many of us could have a theological debate with somebody else? Like, uh, I'd have to Google that. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure what that word means, you know, or whatever. But this woman did, which tells you something. Just, I'm, I'm raising the bar of respect for this person that I think has been given a really bad rap through church, Western church history uh, in all of our conversations about the woman at the well. I want to look with the eyes of Jesus instead. I want to see how he sees, and I think there's enough little snapshots given to us in Scripture about this. Then there's the story of Jesus' feet anointed. Uh, this is in Luke chapter 7. Again, this is from the Passion Translation, in case you're wondering uh, if it doesn't quite sound. That's not how I remembered it. But this, this is a translation that's beautiful. So let's see what happened in this circumstance. Remember, last week I mentioned to you, Jesus was the first liberator of women. When it comes to women's lib, 
He was the liberator. And he liberated not to make anyone become dominant, but equal. Raising the bar. He's the one who raised woman back to equal where it should have been. And it's beautiful. He, he does it intentionally. Watch this. Afterward, a Jewish religious leader named Simon asked Jesus to his home for dinner. Jesus accepted the invitation. When he went to Simon's home, he took his place at the table. In the neighborhood, there was an immoral woman of the streets. What could that mean? Known to be a prostitute. There you go. When she heard about Jesus being in Simon's house, she took an exquisite flask made from alabaster, filled it with the most expensive perfume, and went right into the home of the Jewish religious leader and knelt at the feet of Jesus in front of all the guests. Okay, do you hear anything awkward in this, like right away? Um, if you were having someone over for dinner, and I know it's, there's definitely a cultural thing, but just picture here in Canada for a moment. If somebody just storms in the door and goes to your guest <laughs> and sits at their feet, and you know they shouldn't be there, <laughs> um, there's going to be questions raised. So here, I don't know why they weren't stopped. Maybe it's cultural, who knows? But maybe it's because of the presence of Jesus, even Simon, he's sitting back going, um, and he actually does. Here's how we know. When she heard about, okay, did that. Um, broken and weeping, she, broken and weeping, she covered his feet with the tears that fell from her face. She kept crying and drying his feet with her long hair over and over she kissed Jesus' feet. Then she opened her flask and anointed his feet with her costly perfume as an act of worship. When Simon saw what was happening, he thought, this man can't be a true prophet. If he really were a prophet, he would know what kind of sinful woman is touching him. Come on, Jesus. I don't want to point out the obvious because I can see the sinful woman. What did Jesus see? Did Jesus see sinful woman? The answer is no. You and I do that because those are human terms we use to exclude people or include them. Jesus was inclusive, not exclusive. He was going after those who were excluded. And so when this woman came in, he saw a daughter of the king who maybe have been blind. But the fact she was there worshiping his feet, something had happened to her. She had recognized something. She must have heard something and came to this Messiah and wept at his feet. Wow. And then Simon, with his nice religious leadership, you know, I've got to live up to my role now because I'm seen as a leader, right? Well, here's something funny. Jesus said, Simon, I have a word for you. Do you realize that Simon, here's what he did, and he thought, he thought. He didn't say it. He thought it. And Jesus, this, this is the abiding part, God the Father, being the power in Christ, speaks to Jesus the words of Simon's thoughts. Here's what he said. Okay, all right. I got this. Good. All right. <laughs> Do you see the small potential, how it could have happened? So Jesus uh, uh, says, I got a word for you. Go ahead, teacher. I want to hear it, he answered. He doesn't know what he's getting. 
It's a story about two men who were deeply in debt. One owed the bank $100,000, the other owed $10,000. When it was obvious that neither of them would be able to repay their debts, the kind banker graciously wrote off the debts and forgave them all that they owed. Tell me, Simon, which of these two debtors would be the most thankful? Which one would love the banker most? I suppose it would be the one with the greatest debt forgiven. You're right. Come on down. The price is right. Just kidding. Jesus agreed. And then he spoke to Simon about the woman still weeping at his feet. Here's your lesson, folks. Don't you see this woman kneeling here? She is doing for me what you didn't bother to do. When I entered your home as your guest, you didn't think about offering me water to wash the dust off my feet. Yet, she came into your home and washed my feet with her many tears and then dried my feet with her hair. You didn't even welcome me into your home with the customary kiss of greeting. But from the moment I came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't take the time to anoint my head with fragrant oil, but she anointed my head and my feet with the finest perfume. She has been forgiven of all her many sins. This is why she has shown me such extravagant love. But those who assume they have very little to be forgiven will only love you very little. (laughs) Wow! Talk about getting called out in front of your guests. Jesus is the guest. This is what he does to the religious leader. Talk about him potentially being embarrassed. Then Jesus said to the woman at his feet, All your sins are forgiven. Hmm. Religious ears listening. All the dinner guests said among themselves, Who is the one who can even forgive sins? Or in today's word, seriously, you know, really, you, you, you think you can forgive sins? Who do you think you really are? That's what they're all thinking. And then Jesus said to the woman, she heard all this, by the way, she's right there. Your faith in me has given you life. I love this next line. Now you may leave and walk in the ways of peace. He never condemned behavior. Did you catch that? Instead, now you're good, be good. Live from peace. That's the message of Christ to us today, especially those that are in in very difficult behavioral patterns that do not reflect who they are in Christ. Stop. Discover who you are. Be who you are and act like who you are. Jesus is not walking around with a little check or a, a, a to-do list and wondering all your bad stuff. Oh, you still got to work on that one. Yeah, yeah, that one for you. And you, oh my goodness, look at your list. You know, well, oh, this is tiring. He didn't do that. He sees you as clean. He forgave you. I didn't hear her once beg, please forgive me, Jesus. Is that in the text? No. Even on the cross, Jesus said, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They didn't ask. And yet, he forgave. Hmm. It goes back to the forgiveness series I did. And one of the myths uh, of forgiveness is you don't have to wait for somebody to come and ask you for forgiveness before you forgive them. 
That's not true, although it's very much a, a strong teaching in churches. But the truth is, you forgive from the heart. And when you recognize you have been forgiven, just like you've been forgiven, now forgive. Which means fully and completely. Love this. Oh no, what's this? John 12. This is another story of Jesus' feet being anointed. Did you know there's two stories? I'm going I'm to talk about that after this story. There's, there's a comparison we can make here of these two stories. Six days before the Passover began, Jesus went back to Bethany, the town where he raised Lazarus from the dead. They had prepared a supper for Jesus. Martha served and Lazarus and Mary were among those at the table. They weren't at the previous story. I think they're different stories, just so you know. Because I grew up believing, oh, it's the four Gospels, you know. They're so similar of a story of oil and, and valuable perfume being poured on Jesus' feet. There's no chance that could have been like multiple stories. What if there is? What if there's some distinct differences between these stories? And again, it's love. Mary were among the tables. Uh, Mary picked up an alabaster jar filled with nearly a liter of extremely rare and costly perfume, the purest extract of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet. Then she wiped them dry with her long hair, and the fragrance of the costly oil filled the house. But Judas, the locksmith, he was also the accountant for the 12 disciples who was skimming the whole time, all right? Um, uh, Simon's son, the betrayer, spoke up and said, What a waste! We could have sold this perfume for a fortune and given the money to the poor! Wink, wink. In fact, Judas had no heart for the poor. He only said this because he was a thief and in charge of the money case. He would steal money whenever he wanted from the funds given to support Jesus' ministry. <laughs> Jesus said to Judas, Leave her alone. She saved it for the time of my burial, which is about a week away. This is about a week or so away, maybe a week and a half, two weeks, before he was going to die. So for him to say this, again, he's trying to prepare those who loved him the most that he's going to die. And you'll see a pattern of that as you get closer to the cross. It's, it's, and they didn't catch it. They just didn't hear it. But you go back, you can see all these little hints all the way through through. When the word got out that Jesus was not far from Jerusalem, a large crowd came out to see him, and they also wanted to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Oh, yeah. See, there's two people people wanted to see. Lazarus, because he was obviously dead. It's the only funeral I know of that Jesus showed up late for. Four days late. You try showing up 10 minutes later, you know, or you come in when the service is over. I, I see it happen in my work all the time. You didn't just see the time, you know, the end. And then they sit down. It's so funny. Be on time, people. Anyway, Jesus was four days late. And here they want to see this absolutely amazing miracle. All right, let's compare these stories. John, in the book of John, tells that Martha was serving and Mary was at Jesus' feet from Lazarus sitting nearby. In the other story, Luke says that after Jesus rebuked Simon the Pharisee, he told the woman that her faith had saved her and to go in peace. So there's different characters in each of these stories. Now, some of you may be wondering, why is this a big deal? Because in Bible colleges and wherever they teach this stuff, they, they assume and they... Plead a strong case, it's the same story, just different information. 
but they happen at very different times. Why would Jesus say that to Mary, and then Mary and Martha had hosted Jesus before? And Jesus brought their beloved brother back to life. Jesus and Mary are close friends. So why would he tell her to leave the banquet? No, Mary, being a devoted disciple, would have known about what the other woman had did. She had already heard the story of the alabaster jar. She saw how beautiful that was. She heard it. It was a common part, a story, a common part of the narrative of wherever they went. This other woman's story kept passing through because nobody does that kind of thing. And so when she finally did, she may have seen it even, or at least smelled it. The story of the other woman was at the end of Luke, and Luke 8 tells us that as Jesus, as Jesus was soon after the first anointing, going from town to town, with Mary was one of the women following him and supporting his ministry. So there's a group of women, which I'm going to get to in a moment, but there's a group of women traveling with Jesus, and they must have seen this. I think the evidence points to Mary copying what the other woman did to express her thankfulness and love for Jesus. After all, she had, had, she had seven demons cast out of her, and Jesus had healed her brother of death. Uh, she had much, much, much to be thankful for. Do we walk in thanksgiving, or do we walk in kind of an expectation, you know, I, 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 I've got this coming to me. Why isn't God doing more for me? Why, why don't I have this kind of success? I want that person's success. And yet, when we look at what Christ has done for us and get our eyes off the other trophies, oh my goodness, our heart of thankfulness will swell up with joy and thankfulness and will be who we're called to be, generous people. So more than 12 followed Jesus. We have the disciples, the group of 12, following around and going from place to place to place. But did you know there's a group of women? Again, there's the women again. In fact, they're the ones who had the money. You'll find that out in a second. Soon afterwards, Jesus began a ministry tour through the country. Now, listen, ministry tour. <laughs> do you know how what would Jesus do thing can work? If you take it the wrong way, what did Jesus do? He went on a ministry tour. Oh, then I got to go on a ministry tour. <laughs> really? That's not at all what it means to live like Jesus. That, not at all. And if you've been a part of any kind of ministry before and done any kind of traveling, that's a common thing. You just go on tour and do your stuff. But this is Jesus listening to his Father with a purpose of going place to place. Now, does that mean it's wrong or right to do that? Not at all. I'm just saying, know why you're doing it versus trying to mimic something. So as he began his tour, visiting cities and villages to announce the wonderful news of God's kingdom realm, his 12 disciples traveled with him and also a number of women who had been healed of many illnesses under his ministry and set free from demonic power. Jesus had cast out seven demons from one woman. Her name was Mary Magdalene, for she was from the village of Magdala. Among the women were Susanna and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, who managed the King Herod's household, many other women who supported Jesus' ministry from their own personal finances also traveled with him. It takes money to run stuff, folks, right? We, we forget that. We, we would read, oh, he didn't have a, a pillow to put his head on. He used a rock to sleep. Oh, he was so poor. Really? But was he? Let's, let's be careful here. When you travel with a group of people, there are expenses, food, their lodging, hosting, you name it. So there is a cost involved. And I can hear some people say, I've heard people tell me, 
The gospel's free. Why should we have to give anything? Why do you sell that stuff to make money? The gospel is free. Your book should be free. That should be free. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? You know, go have another French fry. You drive me crazy here. And like, if that's what you think ministry is about, the gospel is free. Getting it out there costs. It takes finances to make things happen. So if we're guilting people with a God um, club that says you must tithe and you smash people over the head and make them feel like garbage because they're not quite giving enough, that's wrong. But instead, share a vision of something they can get, can get excited about and invite them, hey, come support this. Okay. Just like Hope Fellowship. We're here together, and when we take up our offering, it's to support what we do here to stay here and cover the expenses of all this stuff. You know, Jesus did the same thing. Judas was the money guy. You know, the women were the wealthy ones who helped fund half of this stuff. These women were far more important than ever before. Jesus raised the bar of equality here. He's giving them equality in a way that should have been going on, which was extremely countercultural for his day. This was not normal stuff. In fact, uh, to travel with a rabbi was considered a high honor, yet it was not permitted in the culture and time of Jesus' ministry for a woman to be mentored by a rabbi. Absolute no-no, and yet he mentored a lot of women. Something was really changing. You wondered why the religious leaders were ticked off with him? Not just for kicking the snot out of the, the, the temple and money changers, not just for declaring himself as God. Not, like, he, just, he just had constantly set himself up for uh, being anti or uh, not conforming to the culture of man-made culture. Instead, he brought with him the deity, the love, of being who he says he was, and he reflected the character of what should have been. And he's waking people up to this. Jesus elevated women to a place of honor and respect in spite of the cultural limitations. It was these wealthy women who provided for Jesus' care. Luke is the one gospel writer who brings out the many times Jesus honored women. These women would later be present at the crucifixion. Um, Mary Magdalene was the first human being to see the risen Christ. Yep, he didn't show up at a king's place. He showed up in front of a woman. That's how he declared his resurrection. That's the first person who saw. So if you got a problem with that, Jesus didn't. And there's more and more evidence coming out that we're misreading the scriptures when it talks about the role of women and, and men and blah, blah, blah. Oh my goodness, let love rule. Let love rule. Then we have the story of Jairus' daughter. This is a beautiful story. While Jesus was still speaking, an influential Jewish leader approached and knelt before him saying, help me, my daughter just died. This is a woman. Okay? That, that is important. Please come and place your hand upon her so that she will live again. So Jesus and his disciples got up and went with him. And Okay, that's part of the first story. Now it slips right into another one. I couldn't separate them because they're back to back to back in between. That's kind of how this one works. So as they're going, suddenly a woman came from behind Jesus and touched the tassel of his prayer shawl. Apparently he was wearing a shawl that had different colored things on it. It was part of their culture. Uh, each thing meant something different. The tassels, if there were beads on, whatever, you can do your own research on that. But she knew to touch the shawl. 
to touch him, his garment, whatever it was she ended up touching. She had been suffering from continual bleeding for 12 years, but had faith that Jesus could heal her. For she kept saying to herself, if I, if I can only really touch his prayer shawl, I'd be healed. Just then, Jesus turned around and looked at her, looked at her and said, my daughter, be encouraged, your faith has healed you. And instantly, she was healed. Another book that covers the same story said, he said, who touched me? And the, and the disciples said, are you kidding? You're crowded by a whole ton of people. What do you mean, who touched you? Anybody could have touched you. What are you talking about? Jesus felt power leave him, which tells me something about the abiding again. Maybe God the Father hadn't revealed to him at that moment that was about to happen, but he felt power leave him. He goes, oh, I didn't hear about this one coming. And then, boom, he finds out a woman was healed because the Father knows what's going on all around giving voice to his son. Do you remember Jesus said when he was asked, uh, when, when are you coming back? And he said, I don't know the day or the hour. He didn't know at that time because father never told him. So this is kind of interesting how we begin to look at abiding and each story, you can hear God whispering the words, whispering the thoughts of somebody else, whispering what to say because Jesus relied moment by moment, instant by instant in absolute surrender to his father. We too are being called to live like that. When Jesus finally entered the home of the Jewish leader, he saw a noisy crowd of mourners wailing and playing a funeral dirge on their flutes. He told them, you must leave, for the little girl is not dead. She's only asleep. And then everyone began to ridicule him. <laughs> she's dead. What are you talking about? What do you know? You're just some guy. What are you talking about? After he made the crowd go outside, he went into the girl's room and gently took hold of her hand. She immediately stood to her feet, and the news of this incredible miracle spread everywhere. Are you seeing a pattern? Are you seeing a compassionate Jesus seeing hurt, seeing people? Uh, nope, we're going to come back to that next week. You can, yeah. Uh, I've got a couple amazing, couple more stories that'll blow your mind. Just to see the character of the one we say we believe in. Do we know the stories? Hmm. I'm being reminded of details I have forgotten about for years and years and years. You know, I remember one time uh, I grew up reading this comic book Bible called the Picture Bible. Remember, anybody ever see that one by David C. Cook or something like that? Yeah, I, I, I loved it. I read it. I knew all the stories. In fact, I got to Bible college second year. Suddenly, a teacher asked about somebody and went, I don't know. I don't know where that is, but I know what he looks like. So I quickly went to my Bible. <laughs> there was, and it shows you the text where it was. <laughs> it's just very, anyway, it's very funny. You remember stories. But anyway, keep, keep thinking through. Re learn, hear the stories. These stories matter. Stories are remembered. Where they're located is not as important, but remembering the intent, remembering the heart of the one you say you believe in. Jesus is for you. He has forgiven you. He's good. He's made you good. Let's be who we've been called to be. And for some of us, that means we need to discover who we really are in Christ. Let's pray. Father,